I completely forgot to move this. I must forgot to move these. All right, Acts chapter 27. Um, and as you as you go there, uh, we just sang about the fact that this is our Father's world, right? And it's our Father's world, and so He's working in the world to accomplish His plan. Uh, we, we we thought primarily in that last stanza about the fact that God is working His plan, and that one day uh, sin and the wrong is going to be defeated, and God is going to establish His kingdom. Right? We look forward to that. God is at work. God is at work, and as he works, he's graciously, kindly revealing himself to us in his working. In his working, he reveals to us who he is. And so through the scriptures, through God's written word to us, we come to know who God is, we come to love who he is, and we come then to serve him. So God is most assuredly working through history. And that's not only true today, that's true 2,000 years ago. That's true 4,000 years ago. That's true 6,000 years ago. God is at work. In fact, one of the primary ways in which we come to know our God is through his work in history. And as it's recorded for us in Scripture. We come to know what he likes. We come to know what he dislikes. And as we do that... It should lead to, it should culminate in our worship and adoration, thanksgiving, and boldness in continuing to follow him. And I think that's exactly what Acts chapter 27 through 28 verse 16 is going to show us. Is that God reveals himself slowly but consistently, faithfully to his servants. And as he does so, their response is supposed to be one of thanksgiving and one of bold continuing faithfulness. If you think about Paul's situation, Paul's situation right here is a difficult predicament. Paul has been told numerous times by God through visions and dreams that when he arrives in Jerusalem, he's going to be bound and he's going to be taken to Rome. He's going to be imprisoned. And I doubt that when he had this happen, he thought that this was going to be a multiple year long process. And that's exactly what's happening. He's now been in prison for over two years. And is God still faithful? Is God still working through the trials and through the hardships of his life? And I think that as we read through this text, you're going to see that it's a resounding yes. God is at work. He's faithful. He is good. He's accomplishing his plan for his people. And as a result, we rise up. We thank him for his and we yearn in our hearts to continue boldly living for him. If you're able, I know it's a, it's a longer text once again. Um, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Acts chapter 27, and we'll read through Acts chapter 28, verse 16. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, the centurion the Augustan Regiment. So entering a ship of Adramitium, we put to sail, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When, he had put, when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus 
because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete of Salmone. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Theravens, near the city of Lycia. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fleet was already over, the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So, when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the surface sands, they struck sail, and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat, beat on us, all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have sailed from incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, not but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the gods to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God, that it will be just as he has told us me. However, we must not run aground on a certain we must, search, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were, they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day. You, are in wait you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment. For this is for your survival, since not a fear will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, 
we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a, de a bay with a beach, into which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and let them in the sea, left them in the sea, meanwhile losing the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. For striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves, and the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose, and commanded them that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest come on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome, because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging on from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But he shook off the creature from the fire from sorry, but he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. In that region there was an estate of the leading <coughs> citizens of island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went in to him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this had done, was done, the rest of those on the island who had disease also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was his twin brother, which had wintered at the island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and beach, reached Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And as we went toward Rome, and from there, when the brothers heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and three inns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, when he came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoner to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As you look at the text, I think that this is the Idea that God faithfully protects and establishes his faithful servants. God faithfully protects and establishes his faithful servants. And the text really begins by pointing out that God brings hard times. And that God has not abandoned us in those hard times. God has not abandoned us in those hard times. As we've already highlighted, Paul is a prisoner. And the text specifically mentions for us that Paul and a group of other prisoners are being delivered over into the control of a Roman centurion who is to take them 
to their final destination, Rome. Probably some of them are not actually being appealed to Caesar, but they're actually going there for the Roman games to be killed as gladiators. And so God even provided him with reminders of his gifts as he goes, right? He's given freedom at Sidon to be able to see his friends. Numerous times you see this type of idea occurring, that, that Paul is given freedom, that the centurion is actually not the one who's in control. And that God is actually the one who's in control of our faith. It's, it's almost humorous that the text begins that Paul and these other prisoners were handed over or delivered into this guy's hands. And yet as you continue to read through the text, numerous times Julius, the centurion, makes decisions that go contrary to what God has revealed to Paul or the advice that Paul gives. And as a result, bad things happen over and over again. And so it's, it begins on this literary note that, you know, he's in control. He's been delivered to him. This is going to be in his control. And yet as the text reveals who's actually in control, who's actually protecting, who's preserving Paul, it's not Julius. Except for maybe, like, one time at the end where he prevents the soldiers from killing Paul. But that's after Paul's, like, proven himself a couple of times. And he's probably more concerned about his own self than he is about Paul. And so God is the one who's fully in control. And notice not only is this, this humorous note about Julius brought up, but the text actually goes on. And as the text goes on, the, the, the text constantly portrays God as being the one who's in control. You're going to have this mighty storm envelop them for over 14 days. And they say in the text that all hope of being saved was lost. The centurion wields his great power. The soldiers have their great swords. The snake has its deadly venom. But who controls all these things? Who determines the outcomes of all these situations? It's none other than God. God is the one who's working all of these things and thwarting the natural consequences and natural outcomes that we would expect from all these things. It's God who controls our faith. So yes, God does allow hard times in our life but as those hard times come he continues to show us that he is in control, that we can trust him but notice that the hard times, a lot of times are also the natural result of our stupid choices, right? That allows people to face the natural consequences of their actions so as you look at the text, notice in verse 4 that he says, when he had put to sea from there we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. Why are they needing shelter? Because the winds were contrary. You go down to verse 7 and you see a similar idea. And arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete. You go down to verse 8. Passing it with difficulty, we came to. You go down to verse 9. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was already over, Paul advised him, saying, we shouldn't do this. And I don't think this is some sort of revelation from God. The text doesn't highlight in verse 10, saying that this is something that God has specifically revealed to Paul. I think Paul is just using the natural means of making wise decisions. Verse 4, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, all tell you this is a stupid idea to keep sailing. 
back then they probably didn't sail from around November to around February. It was considered unsafe to do so. And they're well into that time period. And they're already experiencing the natural consequences of sailing around this time of year. And what do they do? They decide to proceed. Because the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship and the centurion decide that that's what they're going to do. And they go against Paul's advice. And notice how, how they, they, they ultimately embark upon this is in verse 13. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desires, they put out to sea. They sailed close by Crete. You can tell they're not fully confident in the decision because they're still right next to Crete, seeking the shelter from the wind that the island would provide. And so God is allowing people to face the natural consequences of their decision. And so as the text continues to proceed, you notice that the storm rises up. And as the storm rises up, it just takes control of them there is no control that they have in the situation anymore. The centurion's not making decisions. He's not in control of Paul. The captain's not making decisions. The owner's not making decisions. Nobody's in power. Nobody's in control anymore. God is the one who's bringing this upon them. And so numerous times it talks about the, the ship just being blown. It talks about the dangers that they know are there, the surface sands. And it talks about how they're continuing to throw things out of the ship to try and allow themselves to be saved. But the text ultimately concludes in verse 20, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Even the, the sailors and the mariner, mar, mariners Mariners, sorry. Um, they're, they're, they're lost all hope. They're like, there's no way we're getting out of this. They probably endured storms over a couple of days, and then they approach this one, and they're like, well, that's the end, you know? But God is the one who is bringing this, and He's doing it for a specific purpose. He's doing it so that He can reveal Himself, that He can show Paul once again who but also show the centurion who he is, show the captain who he is, show the sailors who he is, to remind the faithful servants of God who are accompanying Paul, Aristarchus and Luke, maybe even others, that he is indeed a faithful God, one who faithfully cares for his people. Notice the text highlights that despite our foolishness, God continues to demonstrate care. In verse 21 and following, you see this. I'm not insinuating in this idea here that, that Paul was being foolish. What I'm primarily highlighting is God's faithfulness and God's care to unbelievers who act foolishly. Verse 4, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9 all highlight the idea that this is stupid. Don't do this. Paul uses his practical wisdom, having been shipwrecked three times already. Right? He tells us that. When he writes to Corinthians, he tells them that he's been shipwrecked three times. This is not a guy who has no experience on ships. He knows the idea. He knows the area. He knows the danger that is inherent in the situation. And he just uses basic wisdom. He says, guys, you guys should know this. This is not the time to sail. This is stupid. And yet what does God do? God comes and he graciously promises 
that there's not going to be any loss of life, but only the loss of the ship. We can be so foolish sometimes, as believers and as unbelievers. God reveals himself. God reveals his plan for our lives. He reveals how we're supposed to follow him in obedience. And yet we can so easily look at God's revelation of himself, that he's a good, merciful God who gives us his instructions for how we're supposed to live. And we look at that and we say, yeah, but I'll follow my own plan because I'm content in that path. And so often, God comes to us in our sin, in our rebellion, and he shows us mercy. He shows us grace. And this is exactly what's happening in this story. But more importantly than God simply showing his mercy and his grace to them is this idea that God's care provides us with opportunities to proclaim his name. And notice that's exactly what Paul does. As he talks through verse 21 and 22, 23, 24, notice what he does. He doesn't simply get up and say, you know, I told you so, and leave it at that. He could have just got up and said, you know, I think that we still have hope. But he actually takes time to proclaim the faithfulness of God. For us, but also for them. For us so that we can look back upon this account and be reminded that God is faithful. That God is true to his word. That he's true to his character. And his character is one that cares for, provides for, and providentially protects his people. Notice how he recounts this. Men, you should have listened to me. Not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart. Why? For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. This is God's purpose. God's purpose is that he would save me. He's going to save you too. So that what's going to happen? So that I have opportunity to go stand before Caesar and tell Caesar that there is a God higher than you. That there is only one true God. And that he's revealed himself primarily through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that through faith in him and him alone, you can have peace with God. You can become a child of God, Caesar. God's purpose in demonstrating faithful is so that you and I have opportunities to once again proclaim his character. As God shows you his faithful care, as he shows you his goodness and his mercy, he gives you and I opportunities to talk with our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and tell them God is faithful. And maybe the circumstances of your life are hard. Maybe relationships are broken. Maybe there's health difficulties. But, but even if all the physical circumstances of your life are miserable and horrible, it's really what's happening to Paul, right? Paul's been in prison for two years. He's going to be in prison for another two years. It's not really the recipe for a good life that's being described here. Yeah, he has hope. Why does he have hope? He has hope because he knows that his sins have been forgiven. 
he has peace with God. And that he's been entrusted by God to faithfully proclaim that hope-filled message to others. And so God shows his providential care in allowing him to then go and proclaim it. You know, God also provides hope to those who are without hope. These are people who have no hope. Verse 20 highlights that for us. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. And they're promised why? Because God is faithful. He's promised that he's going to do this. And he will bring it to pass. God offers hope to those who are without hope. They've been in this ordeal for many days. Later on, the text is going to highlight in verse 27 that at that point it's been 14 days. We don't know if this is you know a day or two before or if this is the same day. And verse 27 is just a few days later. The text doesn't really let us know for sure. But these are people who are without hope. And God promises them and gives them hope. But notice what this is also teaching us. This is teaching us something about the character and person and work of God and how he's revealed himself. God's word is faithful and trustworthy. Paul looks and he says, God has revealed this, and because God has promised this, this will come to pass. And in a very same and similar way, we know how God has revealed himself. We know what God has promised us. And it may not be promises about how he's going to deliver us from a storm off the island of Crete. We know what he's promised us because his word promises us, ultimately, that our final destination is secure. We may not be promised that we're going to arrive at Rome. We do know that through faith in Jesus Christ, our eternal home, our home in heaven with God, is secure. And we also know that the other promises of God's word are true, that they're certain, that they are faithful, and that God is going to accomplish those. He's going to bring those about. You see, the text isn't simply teaching Paul and his people that surround him something about the character and person and work of God. It's teaching us something about God's character. If God does not change, and God does not change, then when he makes a promise, he fulfills his promise. He carries it out. He completes what he has begun. And finally, we see that God preserves people's lives. Notice how the text continues to go on. They're still in the storm, day 14, and they begin to notice that they're approaching land. They take a sounding, and as they take that sounding, they realize that it's 20 fathoms. They wait a little bit. They realize it's 15. They realize we need to stop. Because if we allow the ship to continue to be blown in the night, and we don't know what we're going to be hitting, we very well may hit something and crash, and we could all die. And so the sailors, what do they do? They go and they, they lower their anchors, and then they act like they're going to be lowering another anchor, but instead of lowering another anchor, they're actually trying to lower 
one of their lifeboats down. And what are they going to do? They're going to jump in that and they're going to leave the ship, their deserting ship. And the prisoners and the soldiers and anybody else that's on board that's a passenger can just go down with the ship, but they're going to get to safety on that land that's close by. And Paul realizes what's going on, and he tells the centurion, this is what's going on, and the soldiers, what do they do? Like, you're not leaving. You're, you're the ones that are going to make sure the ship gets to land. So they go and they cut the lifeboat away and make the guys stay on the boat. What's that accomplishing? Paul specifically highlights, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. God's preserving their lives. God is caring for them. And, and so, believer, God cares for you. He faithfully cares for you. He's given us so many different accounts of his faithful, unchanging character in Scripture. Time and time again, Scripture highlights the faithfulness of God's care. That he's a merciful God, that he's a loving God, that he's a holy God, that he is a good God who delights in giving us good things so that we can rejoice in his character, so that we can proclaim to others his goodness, his character. It's this hope you and I have to rely on in the storms of our life. It's the character of God that we rely on. It's not the outside circumstances. Notice Julius has no control. The ship has no control. The, the, the people who have been trained to be able to manipulate this ship to accomplish what it's supposed to do to bring people about in safety have given up all hope. And what provides hope? It's the character that's what provides them with hope. That's what brings peace to Paul's mind. And that's ultimately what's going to bring peace to the other people who are in the ship's minds. And this is the same God that you and I serve. This is the hope that we've been entrusted with. And this is the hope that you and I have been entrusted with, not only to rejoice in and to cherish for our own selves to find peace in, but also to take that same hope that promises that God is faithful and that he cares for us and to proclaim that to others and tell them that they too can find the same hope in Christ Jesus. But if you're here and you have not received Christ, know that God cares for you too. John chapter 3 verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, your sin deserves God's just punishment and an eternity of punishment in hell. And yet God so greatly cares for you, so greatly loves you, that he's unwilling that any should perish, but wants all's comfort. And so he sends his Son who lives a perfect, sinless life, so that if you place your faith in him, turning from your own works, place your faith in him, you can become the child of God. You see, God cares for you. He's given you his son. Are you willing to receive him? But then notice the 
text goes on and it tells us that God encourages people. God encourages people. God encourages us by providing for our physical needs. And, and so as the text continues to develop, in verse 33, Paul stands up and he implores them. Today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Paul gets up and he encourages them, hey, you got to take food. 14 days without eating, we're getting ready to be shipwrecked. Remember, the ship is going to be lost. You don't have to be lost, but the ship's going to be lost. You need to have some good carbs in you to be able to swim wherever you need to swim to or row wherever you need to row to. you got to eat some food. We don't know why these people have not eaten. Perhaps, perhaps the storm has been so fearful that they just haven't eaten. Perhaps they've been fasting and praying to their own God, asking their own God to care for them and to provide safety for them. The text doesn't tell us exactly. Whatever the reason, their fear hasn't subsided enough for them to eat and or their God has not come and answered like Paul's God has. And so Paul encourages them to take physical provision for their needs. But then God also encourages us by primarily reminding us of his character. <clears throat> Notice how he concludes his encouragement for taking physical nourishment by reminding them of the spiritual promises that he's already received and he gave them in verses 21 and following. He says, not a hair of your head is going to be lost. You are safe in the promise of God. And as they hear this, what happens? They're encouraged. God protects. He satisfies their needs completely. He's worthy of thanksgiving and praise. And as a result, they're supposed to respond. The result is that they're supposed to be encouraged and strengthened. And that's exactly what you see happen in the text. Notice verse 35 and following. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. Thanked him for his provision the food, but, but more importantly, the fact that he's promised that they're going to be saved. And when he had broken it, he began to eat, and they were all encouraged and pushed food themselves, and in all there were 20, 217 sick persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. See, the result of God's encouraging in our own life Maybe we are encouraged, but also we're strengthened to go on and to accomplish the mission that God has given us. God's continuing to care for and provide for his people. The text goes on and it's going to highlight God's specific preserving of his servants. And really the whole text has been highlighting this at various times in various ways. But I think this is kind of the culmination of the preserving aspect of the text. And then he's going to move into the conclusion. But God preserves countless believers and unbelievers every day. But the purpose of Acts 27 to 28 is not simply to highlight the fact that God preserves believers and unbelievers. The primary purpose of Acts 27 and 28 is to highlight the fact that God preserves believers with a purpose and a plan. He preserves Paul. Why? So he can validate his ministry. Here is a man who is imprisoned, who's been accused of committing a high crime against Caesar. 
that some say is worthy of death. He's been delivered into a centurion. The centurion is kind to him. But as the centurion and the soldiers go with him and they observe all this, what do you think they walk away saying about Paul? This guy's a danger to society? No, he's proved to be anything but that. He's constantly shown with physical wisdom that he's trying to care for people physically. And he takes what he receives from God as special revelation and he says, this is important that we do this because this is how God has planned for things to go. It's showing that this is actually God's servant. Julius cannot walk away from his six or so months with Paul and go, you know, if I was asked to testify on Paul's behalf or against Paul in front of Caesar's court, I have to say that he's a no-good scoundrel and deserves death. Like, this text doesn't allow Julius to walk away going, Paul is worthy of death. This text only allows him to look at this and go, no, this is obviously God's servant. In a very similar way as, as that centurion looks on as Jesus dies and he says, surely this man was the son of God. I think it's the same type of idea that's happening here. Not that he looks and he says, this is the son of God, but this is the servant of God. This is God's man. But notice how this all kind of culminates even in, in chapter 27 as it concludes. Um, the soldiers want to kill him, and the, the centurion says, no way, we're not killing him. You don't verbally have him validating his ministry and saying he's a servant of God, but why does he preserve his life? If Julius allows Paul to escape, you know what the punishment for Julius is? Julius dies. But over the course of chapter 27, what happens? Julius becomes somebody who really appreciates Paul and is willing to risk his own life for him and for a bunch of no-name scoundrel prisoners who are probably going off to be executed in the games. People who are of no worth He's willing to like spare all of them because he's realized this Paul is somebody that's valuable. That he's God's servant. God's obviously speaking to this guy. But then you also see um, later on in the text that as 28 opens, there's this fire. Paul brings a bundle of sticks, and probably the, the viper has somewhat like dozed off or not quite awake because of the cold of the rain and stuff, and as he puts that back into the fire, what happens? The viper bites Paul. And the people looked on, and what do they do? Like, oh man, this guy was a really bad, no good scoundrel. He deserved to die. Unfortunately, the waves didn't get him, but justice has been served. He's going to die momentarily by a snake bite. Serves him right. Let's just watch and wait. And you just kind of see them watching and waiting. They're, they're speaking in their own native language and anticipating his death, anticipating some, you know. And nothing happens. What do they eventually say? He must be a god. Like, he's not dead yet. He has to be god. What are they doing? They're validating. Like, the only way that you're protected and cared for through situations like this is if you're somehow attached to in relationship with God. But he preserves him. He preserves him so that he can further his ministry opportunities. 
God preserves him to give him further ministry opportunities. And it really goes back to verse 24, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And notice he ministers in this island of Malta, right? He takes care of Publius' dad, helps him to get better. No doubt in these three months that he stays on the island, after he has this amazing introduction to his own ministry work, what do you think Paul does for the next three months? Sits around and you know, sips iced tea on the beach? No, no. He's proclaiming Jesus to them. He's been given an awesome ministry opportunity, and he knows it more than lies in front of him. But notice how all this culminates. All this culminates in pointing us to the fact that God deserves all the glory. God's care, God's care results in thanksgiving to God. Paul, as he travels, he meets with people, he stays with people again um, uh, at Syracuse. Um, no, not at Syracuse, at uh, Puteoli. And then after that, there's already messengers who are going to Rome telling the Roman believers that Paul's on his way. And they travel. Some of them meet him at Appi Forum, and some of them meet him at Three Inns. This is probably a 30 to 45 mile journey for the Bible they have. And some of them are super excited and super ambitious, and they make the 45 mile journey, and they meet him there, and they're like, welcome, Paul. We're so glad that you've come. We've read the book of Romans. We're excited to have you minister in town, even if you're a prisoner. Other of them are a little slower. Maybe they have some toddlers or something. They don't get there till three ends. But when Paul sees all this, the welcome of the believers, but I think he's also meditating upon God's provision and care for 27 and 28. What does he do? How does he respond? He thanked God and he took courage. Took courage for what? For the ministry that lay ahead. Right? You see, God's hope results in boldness in God, in God's faithfulness. God's hope results in boldness in God's faithfulness. And the only fitting response to seeing the full display of God's Worship through thanksgiving, but also worship through service. And that's exactly how you see Paul responding to this. God's revealed himself through Acts chapter 27, through chapter 28. And Paul responds in saying, God is worthy of thanksgiving. He's worthy of worship, and that is the thanksgiving that lies ahead. And Luke records for us Acts chapter 27 and 28, so that we too would see God's character as one who faithfully cares for people, as one who encourages people, as one who preserves us for continued ministry, so that we too would rise together, thank him for his gracious provision, and endeavor to continue boldly accomplishing the mission that he's given us. See, God reveals himself. God shows us who he is so that we would have a deeper, more intimate relationship with him, one that is marked by faithful service and worship of him. That's God's desire in revealing himself to us. Why is Acts 28 and 27, 27 and 28 in Scripture? So that we would know and personally worship God, so that we would worship and serve him more deeply. By way of application, God faithfully cares for all our needs. Does faithfully care for our needs. Consistently, faithfully, providing all the things that we need. Not necessarily all our wants, 
and all of our needs, all of our true needs have been supplied by his gracious God encourages us by reminding us of his character. Where do you go when times are too hard to handle? When the physical demands of life overwhelm you, when the, the pain of death swarms about, when the heartache of physical illness is ever present, where do you go for hope? And what Acts chapter 27 and 28 teaches us is that the only place for true hope is in the promises of God. They don't find the hope in their circumstances. They find their hope in the promises of God. Acts chapter 27, verses 23 through 24. It's God's promises that bring hope. It's God's promises that bring encouragement. God entrusts us with encouraging others. God encourages us so that we would be an encouragement to others. Scripture teaches us this, right? God allows us to go through trials, to find encouragement, to find comfort from God. So that what? So that we too can take that same comfort with which we've been comforted and comfort others. That's God's plan for how we minister together, how we serve together, how we see one another grow in Christ's likeness. God preserves you to further his glory. God's faithfulness is something that you and I are to proclaim, to make known, to share with others, so that God is glorified, so that God is magnified. And all of this is so that you and I would grow in our thankfulness to God, and we would grow in our boldness to minister towards others. And so, as we hear God's word, really brings out the question, how are we going to respond? If you would bow your heads with me. As we've thought through the character of God as it's revealed in Acts chapter 27 and 28, perhaps you would like to talk and to be encouraged, to be strengthened with something. If so, would you look up at me and I will follow up with you. Perhaps, though, as you've, as you've heard God's word presented, perhaps you realize that you know, the truth of God's word is not something that you've received, that you don't know Christ as your Savior, that the intimate care, the faithful love, the encouragement, and the perseverance is not something that you're experiencing. And perhaps you would like to meet with me, to meet with somebody else, and, and to talk and to more clearly and more accurately understand this truth. If so, would you, would you look up at me? Let's go, Lord, in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are a faithful God who cares for us, one who comes alongside us, encouraging us and comforting us in our hardship, one who preserves us. We thank you that you do not do this for our own glory, for our own amusement, or for our own ease in this but you do this so that we would know you, so we would serve you, so we would worship you. We pray that as we think through this text over the coming days, that it would truly help us to approach you in genuine love and in genuine worship. We thank you for your revelation of yourself to us. In your name we pray. Amen.